Hi, everybody. This is Josie Schaefer. Welcome to Academics of Public Administration. I'm here with Bruce McDonald. Hey, Josie. How are you? I am enjoying the quarantine life here yes. in my basement room. We are recording this during COVID-19. I am going to try to use my mute button because I do have two kids and a husband that have been in the house for weeks. So it's loud. <laughs> That's okay. I think they're There's out There's a chance walking. my dog will uh, whine into my mic as well. Yeah. These are exciting times. But we are here today with Jeremy Hall. Welcome, Jeremy. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for being here. It took us a little bit to get you scheduled, but we are thrilled that we could have you on. Uh, why don't we start by you introducing yourself and some current relevant information? Oh, current relevant information. Well, that's a, that's a tricky one. <laughs> Most of the audience, I think, will know that I'm one of the co-editors of Public Administration Review. Um, I'm the faculty at the University of Central Florida, but I think, you know, current and relevant, that just means I'm sitting at home in my living room quarantined like all the rest of us. Well, that is relevant, and we are glad you are following state and federal guidelines. <laughs> that is important. The, the beauty is that I'm currently sort of bunkered down away from the urban centers, far from the reaches of uh, let's say government oversight. So I could probably get by with a lot of things that most people couldn't right now, but, but I am following the guidelines pretty well. I'm interested. What, if you could get away with anything right now, what would you get away with? Probably a steak dinner. <laughs> We're appreciative of that. Uh, hey, you have some healing coups. Yeah, I do. I do. Um, Two, two standing in front of the house right now that uh, are expecting little coups any time. What are we talking meal. about? <laughs> cows, Highland cows, Scottish Highland cows. I did spend some time in the South. I probably should know that, but I do not. So thank you. I've learned a lot today. <laughs> well, so why don't we start? I think we want to talk a lot about publishing, being the publisher of PAR, but why don't we start with a little bit of your career and your career trajectory? So how did you come to public administration? That was really purely an accident. Uh, this is a story that I've told usually at conferences and, and receptions and things over the years when people ask me, hey, where did you where did you get your start? What made you interested? And, and it was purely by accident, to be honest. I, I started out my undergraduate career at Center College in Kentucky as a music major. And I finished up and came home and tried to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. And so the first sort of opportunity I had, uh, I started sending out applications and, and trying to find you know, something that would be a fit for me. But in rural southern Kentucky, there really weren't a lot of tremendous opportunities of any kind. And so I, I set my focus really on government uh, as as the target. And I thought state government would be something pretty cool. It's a stable job, dependable income, you know, the kind of things that people care about during quarantines. Um, and I ended up with a job at an, a large nonprofit called the Center for Rural Development and got my feet wet in grant writing and strategic planning and sort of performance evaluation and analysis, things that I had no idea were related to the field of public administration. I just thought these were things that people did. And I was working on a grant project that called for an external evaluator. And I didn't know what that meant and had, had no clue. Didn't know where to start. And somebody said, you know, you should talk to Ed Jennings at the University of Kentucky. And so this is in the day, you know, sort of the early days of the internet. And so uh, you didn't just shoot an email at that time. You still picked up the phone and called people. And so I cold called him. <laughs> and we, we talked. And uh, he agreed to come down and meet with me and ultimately agreed to serve as evaluator on the project. And we were sitting at a table at lunch one day uh, while we were working on this project. And, and he says, so I see that you've applied 
for the Master's uh, of, of Political Science at the University of Kentucky. And I had. Uh, I decided to go to graduate school because the nonprofit I worked for had an affiliation with the University of Kentucky, so I had free tuition. And I thought that would be a sad thing to waste. So, um, you know, that's I'd sent in the application, and I, I didn't have any idea that Ed was affiliated with the political science department at that time. And he says, well, what do you want to do with it? What do you want to be sort of when you finish? And I said, I think I'd like to go work in a state government agency maybe. And we talked, you know, more and more. And he got a better sense of what I was interested in. And he says, I think you should consider public administration, <laughs> which, you know, I'm taking notes, public administration. What is that? And so I went back to uh, went back to my office and pulled up the Martin School's website looked at the curriculum in the catalog and immediately switched my application over. And so the rest, as they say, is history. Um, I went to the Martin School for my master's degree and was recruited into the PhD program and still not really thinking about being a scholar um, or doing research. I, I just, it seemed like a good thing to do. And of course, you know, I had no idea what, what would happen next or where it would take me. That's a great story. Yeah, it's it's one I enjoy telling. I stumbled yeah. right into, into all these things by accident. Well, and the work you are doing at that nonprofit, we start we talk a lot about um, applied research and um, practitioner experiences, and so that was a really interesting and great experience that kicked it all off. Yep. So finished your PhD and then where'd you go and what was, what were you focusing on in your early research? Um, <laughs> my early research, I was, I was just like any other assistant professor. I was focusing on earning tenure. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I know that's not what you mean, but, um, so I, I had you like a few, honesty here. Yeah, I may as well be honest. Um, I had a few choices when I was sort of wrapping up the, the job search, and I, I ultimately decided to go to the University of Alabama at Birmingham because I felt like it was the most research-oriented institution of, of the choices that I had available. And so I went, and they had, as you would expect, pretty, pretty strong tenure standards. And so I, I literally locked myself in, in my office and worked on research for, for three years there um, and, and got a good solid footing. And, and so I'm really glad I made that choice. It was the best fit for me under the circumstances. Um, back then, I was, I was doing a couple of things. I was working on the papers that sort of came out of my dissertation, which was focused on economic development performance and innovation capacity in the states. And I was also working on some projects that were uh, more broadly related to the relationship between government capacity and performance. Um, some, well, uh, my early PAR articles really fall out of those two, two categories. And so uh, those were the big things I was working on uh, way back then. And so how long was it before PAR came knocking? And what does that look like? Oh, that was several moves away. You know, I, I went from UAB. I was recruited to UT Dallas by uh, my, my good friend, Doug, um, Doug Watson. <clears throat> Spent four years at UT Dallas, and I was recruited away to Rutgers um, by my friend Mark Holzer and spent four years up there. And then I really, just to be perfectly honest, uh, best well now my email's dinging best colleagues of the of my career i mean I've, I've had great colleagues everywhere but i really enjoyed the camaraderie we had at rutgers newark it was a great group of people i just couldn't take the cold anymore and um, we get that you know, <laughs> he's a southern boy i, I, I just you know <clears throat> i'm just being honest and and so uh, ucf was an opportunity for me and now i'm in my my fourth year there and and happily so it's, again, sort of pure accident. I looked at the call for proposals for PAR when ASPA put it out. And I looked at the requirements and the expectations 
and all of the things that had to go into that proposal, and I thought, well, this is for somebody else. Well, you know, <laughs> I think just sort of gnaw away at you. You put it to the side, and you think, well, you don't know if you don't try. <clears throat> and I don't know. It just kind of sat there on the back burner of my mind until I get this email from Paul Battaglio, and he, he says basically, hey, I've been talking to some people, and, um, you know, this, this is out there. I wanted to see what your thoughts were on it. <laughs> and so in, I, I guess the, the short story is that we were both thinking about it and it took both of us putting our heads together to come up with the plan. And we spent the better part of a summer, uh, writing the proposal. And, you know, we felt like we did a pretty good job. We were advocating changing the editorial structure uh, that under which the sort of the manuscript review process operates. We changed the content of the journal. We changed the focus. We we really expanded the global reach into places that hadn't been considered before. And you know, uh, we wrote a proposal. We felt good about it. We were passionate about it. Uh, we wanted to be inclusive, not just. Uh, from a from a social equity standpoint, but from a disciplinary standpoint, we put together uh, a global team with our proposal, uh, who represented every subfield of the discipline and every reach of the globe where PAR is is read and um, valued. And you know, we submitted it thinking pretty much that we knew how how this would turn out. Somebody bigger, better, stronger, smarter would would prevail. And then we get the notice that we're among the three finalists. And so we uh, we were invited to give an oral presentation and, and really defense of our proposal at the NASPA conference in Columbus, Ohio that year. And shortly thereafter, we were notified that we were the successful bidders. So, um, again, sometimes if you don't take the chance, nothing good happens. And... If you don't step out on that limb, you know, you don't know whether or not it's going to hold you up. And that's what we did. We, we took a chance and we redesigned something in our minds and we pitched it to, to the people who care the most about it. And they agreed. So, uh, you know, somebody else has got that opportunity in three years. So it sounds like you took a chance, but it also sounds like you have over time developed a great network of people around you that, you know, want you to be a part of things and then you can call on to be a part of things. And one of our audiences is definitely young scholars. And so before we dig into the par aspect of everything, maybe talk about your network. Like how do you think you've created that network of uh, fellow scholars? And like, how does someone go about doing that so that they can have these opportunities open to them as well? You're absolutely right. This, this was not something that was necessarily planned, um, but as part of that longer process of earning tenure and thinking about promotion to full professor, um, I did a lot of things that contributed to my name recognition in the field, such as it is, um, but also, you know, I showed people what I could do and that I was dedicated and passionate and involved and the specific things, if I had to think of some, were just stepping up and saying yes um, to all sorts of things. I went to a lot of conferences, not just regional conferences, not just national conferences. I, I carved finances out of my personal budget to attend uh, international meetings, and I interacted with scholars at those meetings. Um, you know, you go to receptions, you meet people. Um, when an email came through that says, uh, hey, we're looking for nominations for officers for the section on XYZ, I would think about it and say, well, I probably don't have the time for this, but this is good for my professional development. And so I would volunteer myself to, to serve. Um, one of the early things that I did was join the SACOPA uh, board of directors. And I've, I've met lifelong friends uh, as a result of that. Um, some of whom are on our editorial board for PAR now and, and who I work with in other ways. 
So, you know, sticking your neck out is, is kind of the name of the game. You go, you see, you be seen, you get to know people, you interact with people. And, um, you know, I think, I think at the end of the day, one of the advantages that our proposal had was that I had a number of former ASPA presidents in my close network and Paul had the rest, <laughs> so to speak. And, uh, I had worked closely with ASPA national, um, in a number of ways, uh, both as uh, chair of the center for accountability and performance in the past and as program chair for the Seattle conference. Um, so, you know, things like that had tied me into the national office in ways that uh, a lot of people probably aren't. So, it's really involvement with conferences. It's involvement with the associations themselves, with the sections, volunteering to review manuscripts for journals, saying yes to writing book chapters when somebody puts out a call. All of those things, you never know which one is going to, to be the one that made the difference down the road. And and I couldn't point back to any single one and say, hey, that was important. But collectively, uh, the whole set was important. And and I'm really glad that I that I took those chances. Yeah, I think that's a great message. Thank you. Any of the sort of details from your proposal that you, so you just said you can't say which one makes a difference, but you know, you talked a little bit about the things that you thought might be unique about your proposal, um, or maybe you know the things that are unique about what you all are doing now that you're particularly excited about and you think are a real shift for PAR in the field. Yeah. So one of the one of the things we proposed, I mentioned earlier, was getting rid of a lot of the classifications that cluttered up the the, uh, the issues. So there used to be, you know, theory to practice and evidence in PA, and you had all these little features, and articles were submitted to the features, and maybe some of them went through slightly different review processes, and some of them may have been invited, and there wasn't really a clear conceptualization to the reader of what distinguished these pieces other than maybe who had solicited them and, and was serving as editor of the feature. And so Paul and I were thinking about things from the perspective of the reader. And the first thing we said is, Hey, nobody sits down. Nobody in our generation, at least sits down and opens up the cover of par with a glass of wine in front of the fireplace and, and reads it cover to cover, you know, that, that no oh, longer happens. Now, Bruce, if you do that, um, I apologize. Love it. Hey, it's not a glass of wine. It's a nice bourbon or scotch, but you know, well, I, I still do it sometimes. I appreciate one of those. So, uh, we, we can talk, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the, just to be fair, most people, and, and I do, I like print. If I'm going to read something, I like to hold it. But um, I, I, if I'm looking for something from a research perspective, I'm using Google Scholar, just like everybody else. You know, I'm, I'm in the search engines. And so people are pulling up articles on a piecemeal basis through keyword searches. They're not reading par cover to cover. And so the idea that par was laid out like, a magazine, you know, time or people or whatever, really didn't play with us. And so we thought we would simplify the structure and just sort of lump all that together into research articles. A research article is a research article. We don't need to be drawing these lines in the sand saying, well, this one's better than that one. Uh, research is research, and it's all different in various ways. But we also had a stakeholder audience with ASPA that we have to speak to. And so we needed a venue within the publication to speak more clearly to practice and to allow practitioners a, a sort of an inroad to share evidence and, and sort of practical findings and ideas. So we came up with the idea of a viewpoint feature with shorter, less research-oriented articles. And those have been fairly popular. It was a little difficult to get those off the ground at the beginning, but we have a steady stream coming in now. Um, and we've used that feature to really talk about some important issues. We have um, a Me Too symposium coming out, uh, which is a viewpoint feature, not a research article feature. We 
just announced this week a call for papers for our COVID-19 viewpoint symposium. Well, this is all developing very rapidly, and there are certainly lessons to be gleaned from countries that were earlier in the wave, if you will, uh, China, Korea, Taiwan, Italy, Spain. And so we, we think that there are some practical findings of relevance, and we want to get those on paper as quickly as possible. But we don't have sort of the time, we don't have the passage of time and the collection of data that would really support research articles at this point. So we're kind of using the viewpoint to get an early start on uh, some publications out of this crisis. Um, so, you know, sort of simplifying PAR, thinking of it from an electronic standpoint rather than a print standpoint. One of the things we're really proud of is the way that we have dug into Latin America. We appointed uh, an associate editor from Mexico who uh, has been a really tremendous asset. We have gone to conferences in Latin America to talk about PAR. We have seen an increase in submissions of research articles from Latin America. But there's a real developmental need there. It's, it's not um, many institutions in Latin America are not quite at the standard that it takes to publish in PAR. So there's a need for development. And sometimes we'll send, for example, we'll send an article out for peer review that we know won't survive. But we want to get those authors feedback so that they know what's expected uh, and they'll be more successful on their next turn. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're working in Latin America. We're, we're making pushes like that. We just launched a Twitter account um, in Spanish to promote PAR research to the Latin American world. So, you know, we're a global journal, and when you look at the globe, there are some places that we do very well, Europe, Northern Europe especially, uh, Australia, China, Korea, uh, and then there are places that there's just a dearth. Uh, Latin America was one, Africa is one, uh, the Indian subcontinent is one. We get nothing from there in spite of, of having some commonalities in our background um, from a governmental perspective. You know, so, so there, are, there are things that are in the back of our minds all the time that we're trying to work, work through and find opportunities to, to really get PAR out into those areas and to get research in from those areas. I mean, very cool, like very exciting. Was there a lot of pushback when you, I mean, you changed things uh, or no, it was pretty warm and easy? Well, you know, the beauty of serving as editor in chief is that you have quite a bit of editorial discretion. And so I'll, I'll be perfectly blunt in saying that uh, we are very important to ASPA because ASPA generates a lot of its operating revenue from PAR. And so the one thing that lingers in the back of our mind every single day with everything we do, every decision we make, is the continuity of the journal, its future success. And that means impact factor, because impact factor sells journals and subscriptions to libraries and other places, and it it attracts better research. And so it's sort of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and so we're very concerned with the journal's performance, with its success, uh, for that reason. ASPA depends on us. But also, we want to be a leader in the field. So we know scholars depend on us, and we want to be there uh, to support them by publishing their research. Uh, one of the things we say a lot at conferences when we give these sort of talks is is that we don't publish good research in PAR. We can't publish good research. We only have enough pages to publish the best research. And so we reject a lot of stuff. Um, to get more to the, to the thrust of your question, though, was there pushback? Was it warm and fuzzy? Um, there were some bristly moments. So there, there were people who had edited features who I guess thought they were going to continue on under the new editorial team. Uh, they, they probably hadn't been told otherwise. Uh, so we had a, a, a rough couple of weeks letting those people know that we were discontinuing their, their work. And then we had to find a way to integrate the work that they already had in the system. 
and where to put it in our new configuration. And so we we developed a workaround for that with some disclaimers in the in the margins and whatnot. But for the most part, people were pretty pretty receptive. I think I think we got more compliments than we did complaints. Um, at least in that first year, when people really noticed the difference in the journal, um, I don't recall a lot of people uh, having much to say. We we <laughs> we did ha- have the unfortunate uh, um, occurrence of rejecting an article that had been submitted as one of those um, previous features, and then the authors appealed our decision, <laughs> um, which. <laughs> You know, um, we don't see a lot of appeals. Uh, I think we've had about one a year. And we ultimately uh, accepted the article and, and, and put it into one of the two new categories. It was really a function of, of it being evaluated for one feature uh, that didn't exist anymore. And so, you know, it was a fair, it was a fair criticism. But little things like that, you know, if, if there's not something to ruffle the feathers, then you, you sort of lose your attention and focus. I like that someone who writes about performance is now really worried about performance. Good. Well, yeah, and, and you have to be. Um, I mean, one of the things that that weighs heavily on our mind is that there's a lag in the performance measure. So, uh, you know, we're coming up, what is this, April now? So in late June or early July, we'll get the new impact factor uh, measures and rankings for the journals. But they'll be based on 2019 citations to articles published in 2017 and 18. So, you know, that's <laughs> we we started publishing in 18 with a lot of material that was left over from the previous editorial team. So, only now at the end of our first term are we really in a position to see the impact of the changes that we made. And so we're we're very cognizant of you know, what those numbers say to us. And we've been very diligent to make sure that we've done everything humanly possible to, to keep them up. Um, you, you may have noticed we're pretty active on social media. We're always on Facebook with announcements. We update virtual issues on a fairly regular basis and promote those uh, to, to really emphasize readership. We, um, you know, we just do a lot of things to, to make sure that people see what we're doing they have access to what we're doing. One of the one of the current things that we've got going is is the behavioral PA symposium that um, was edited by Sanjay Pandey, um, uh, Greg Van Risen, and um, the other guy at George Washington, who whose name has <laughs> just slipped my mind. That's embarrassing. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it'll come to me in about fifteen minutes. It's all right. Remember earlier when I called you the publisher, not the editor? It happens. Hey, well, you know, what's funny is that there's a little click box inside our editorial manager system, and I actually am the publisher. <laughs> um, I knew that was just me being pressure. Yeah. So, um, I, in other words, I get emails that are intended for a publisher, whatever that means. Um, but so I let that slide. But the, the Behavioral PA Symposium is something that we have been working on for you know over two years and to see it come to print in january was a great accomplishment on the one hand but it let us breathe a great sigh of relief because it turned out really well and we're really proud of it and so because we're really proud of it and we think it's going to continue to do really well it's free you can access the whole issue online uh, whether you're an aspa member or not and so we frequently make content available like that to, to try to promote readership and it, you know, it comes and goes, so it won't be free forever, but um, we, we really do try to make a, a conscious effort to promote what we're doing, not just to lift par, but to lift the work that these scholars are doing. At the end of the day, it's all about the research and the difference that it can make in the world. And there's not ever been a time in my life, including 9-11, when I think public administration research is more important than it is right now, Um, particularly as we look at the outcome of this crisis and what governments did right, what they did wrong, and how how our daily business is is changed and our way of doing things. 
you know, I think I think there's a lot to learn. There's a lot to teach, and PAR is right in the middle of that. So we have to be open to it and available, and we have to to really go out and, and recruit people to send their stuff to us, and then we have to advertise the daylights out of it to make sure it gets out to the world. It's a never-ending story. You mentioned earlier the idea that you know, you're working to increase impact factors, everything else, to make people more aware of the journal, of the research that it produces. I know one of the keys for impact factors, of course, you want to publish stuff that then gets cited a lot. I'm trying to think of a better way of actually phrasing this question because I don't like how I was phrasing that question. How do, you, how do we treat pieces that we know aren't going to be widely cited but are important nonetheless? Kind of on that and how do you decide... Well, how do you make the choice of what you want to publish? Well, that's a good question. <clears throat> and I will say that we have published quite a few things that have very few citations to date. But we think that the research is important. We think that it fills a gap. And just because a lot of people aren't looking at that gap doesn't mean it's not an important one. And so when we look at a manuscript, the first thing we do is to say, you know, let's just say it's a brand new manuscript that comes into the system. We're looking at it for the first time. Uh, the one thing that Paul and I do in our, in our team structure is that we are the central intake people. So as soon as the manuscript has gone through a technical check, we're the first ones who see it. I read it, Paul reads it, and then we discuss it. And one of the first things that we, we try to suss out is, is that very question? Is this important? Is this publishable? Is this uh, is this going to make a difference in some way? And so, kind of the first question is: Is this PA research? We get a lot of stuff that's just not. And I'm not saying interdisciplinary. I'm saying we get stuff that's just not PA at all. Uh, doesn't have even a tangential uh, vector into the stuff we do. We we get stuff on nursing. <laughs> uh, we, we get stuff that is higher education administration disguised as PA. We see stuff that has nothing to do with the, with the field. And so, you yeah. know, we kind of get through that, get, get those weeded out. <clears throat> and then we ask, does this manuscript speak to an audience broader than the subfield from which it originates? And so, you know, just to give you an example there, um, if, if a piece comes to us from, let's say, budgeting and finance, I don't know why I would have picked that, talking to Bruce, but um, if, <laughs> if we get a piece that comes from the subfield of budgeting and finance, our first question is, does this speak more broadly? Is, is this of interest to people in public management? Is this of interest to people in performance management? Uh, do people interested in social equity have an interest in this? You know, is it broader than that narrow subfield? And the reason we ask that is because we know that if it's, if it's broader, then PAR may be the right place for it. There are a lot of journals out there, and they have very specific um, sort of things that they cover. And, and public budgeting and finance is one of those areas that has its own journal that publishes pieces that are specific to budgeting and finance. So our question is, is the, is the finding in this paper important enough to merit publication in the top journal of the field, or should it be relegated to a specialty journal where it will be appreciated by its true audience? Uh, and so that, that question about audience is one that resonates very deeply with us. Um, we think that the pieces we publish are those that reach that broader audience. Um, now, we may not have that down pat. <clears throat> Some pieces do it better than others, but that's a question that we ask. Um, you know, then, then the, the standard things, is this, is it reliable? Is it valid? Is it, um, is the research conducted in an ethical fashion? Those things always matter, of course, but, but it's those, those sort of soft questions that are, are the ones that I think determine where the line is between good research and great research. And like I said a minute ago, we just can't publish good research. Uh, we have to reject a lot of stuff that we think is great as far as research. Uh, and, and when we do, we say, hey, this is probably a better fit for journal X or Y or Z. Um, 
but we just, you know, we have, we have room for about 70 pieces a year in the research article category and uh, 65 to 70, depending on, on page limits. And if we get, <laughs> if we get a hundred research articles that are good, then we have to reject 30 that, that um, we'd like to publish. That's just, that's the cruel nature of it. But, but being selective is part of bumping up the impact factor. The denominator is one of the important measures. So it's, and, and, and you know, the, the, the agreement with our publisher, Wiley, is, um, is one that's based on pages. So we have a limit. Thinking of, you know, after this entire process happens, you get the reviews back, you're looking at the reviews. How do you kind of use those reviews to inform your decision? Or what do you do when the reviews disagree? What role do the reviews actually kind of play in your making your choice? Or how do you use the reviews? Oh, well, we lean heavily on the reviewers. Um, you know, between the two of us, Paul and I, we cover at least in some in some way shape or form we cover most of the areas of the discipline you know i've i've dabbled in public budgeting and finance coming out of the martin school that's no surprise and then paul does human resource management and i'm kind of the performance guy and he kind of does org theory so we know our, our specialties we know our expertise but we also know our weaknesses and so uh, we lean heavily on the reviewers. If there's a piece that comes in and we really don't know uh, the field or the area, we lean on one of our associate editors at that point. Uh, and, and we'll send it out even before we send it for review and say, hey, give this a look. Tell us what you think. Is this a, is this a par piece or is this maybe better for a, for a specialty journal or is this just bad? <laughs> so the... Um, the reviews themselves are essential to us because we pick people that are experts and who know the area better than anyone else, better than we do. And so we look at what they have to say. It is, it is very common for reviewers to disagree on a piece. Let, let me tell you just a little bit about one of, the, one of the struggles we've been having recently with finding reviewers. And this is this is kind of a, a bowling alone world where people want to spend more time writing research rather than reading other people's research, I guess, for, for the collective good. And, you know, everybody's busy. We're all busy. Everybody has stresses yeah. and strains. And so sometimes we will invite, I think the current record is 26, 26 invitations to get three reviews. <sighs> oh. Um, Holy yeah. shit. And, Sorry. you know... <laughs> I mean, I'm not exaggerating. It's very commonly more than 10 uh, invitations. And we try. You know, we're not sending invitations to the same people over and over and harassing them. We try not to invite somebody more than twice a year unless they're on our editorial board. Uh, and then even then we promise no more than six a year, I think. So, you know, finding reviewers is, is a real challenge in this day. And I can tell you from the last two weeks the the current COVID nineteen pandemic is is not helping that <laughs> people are locked away at home with kids and finding it very difficult. I mean, I'm one of them. Uh, finding it very difficult to work and uh, things are getting pushed back. Deadlines are, are are being ignored, and that's that's just part of the the new way of doing things, I guess. Um, but those reviewers, think about this, and and you know. We worked on the on the piece together for JPay on on the art of peer reviewing. And we talked some, some about right. this. You know, how do we pick those three people? Well, if I get a manuscript from China, for example, that uses Chinese data, you better bet that I'm going to have somebody uh, on the reviewer list who can speak to the quality of that data and its validity, uh, and and just the government structure and the way things are done there, because. I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, I've been to China, but I don't know a great deal about the way its government functions. Uh, you can bet that we're going to pick a reviewer who knows the theory, who knows the literature in the area where you're working. And you can bet we're going to pick a reviewer on the basis of the methods that you're using. Because, uh, you know, if you're using a novel methodology, one, one of the ones that came up uh, 
for the first time a couple of years ago was Q, Q, uh, uh, Q methods. And it took us a while to figure out what that meant because the first paper we read didn't really describe it very well. <laughs> but, you know, I guarantee if you send us a paper with Q methodology, we're going to find somebody else who sent us a paper with Q methodology to read it for you. So we pick the reviewers on the basis of their expertise. And when it comes back, we look at the reviewers' expertise, and we look at what they had to say. So if the methodologist says, hey, the methods are great, uh, but I'm not sure whether this is significant or not, and the, the person that we have reading it for theory and literature looks at it and says, hey, this is great, but I don't know about the methods, and the, the third person uh, says, hey, I, I'm, I'm from China, and this, this is a really good um, description of the way things are done there, you know, but I don't know about the methods or the literature, <laughs> then all of those reviews have positives, all of those reviews have negatives, but when we assimilate them, we think about what, what the reviewer knows in the context of what they're telling us about the piece, and that helps us to make the decision. So if, if all of the relevant pieces are covered, then it's pretty easy to say, this is, you know, this is a good piece, it deserves a, a revise and resubmit. Um, that gets more complicated when we don't get the three reviewers we initially pick. Um, and, you know, substitutions uh, affect the, the results always because we, we think we know who the best people are, but the best people are always busy. They don't just review for us. They're reviewing for other journals. They're writing research. They're doing other things. And we, we really do try not to ask too much of any one person. So I can imagine there's times when reviewers all come back and say accept or I'll come back and say reject and your and Paul's views are a little bit different. Do you still side with what the reviewers say? Do you ever make a choice to kind of go against the reviewers? Um, or I'll add on to that too. Sorry. Uh, you were talking about like relevance and like topics and being timely. And so does that ever, uh, you know, factor in in a way where Hey, this is this is something different enough that we want to do it. Anyway. Yeah, I, I mean, sure. If we find something that's pretty novel, then we want to be on the cutting edge, and and so we're we're likely to give that the nod. One of the things about Paul and I, you know, we we met. I mean, we probably met earlier, but we worked together at, at UT Dallas uh, for the four years that I was there, and we've remained close professional friends ever since. And we we get along really well, but we also uh, we also went through some challenges with administrative changes when we worked at UT Dallas that helped us to see how we work together. And I think it's important that we we have a sense for how the other thinks. And so what what I find about our relationship that's really enjoyable and the way we do things is that we don't argue, we don't have disagreements. Um, we, we'll be contemplative. We'll think about things. We'll lay out the points, but we tend to we tend to agree pretty much um, all the time. Uh, I mean, I can't I can't point to an example where we've where we've just been at at odds uh, on anything. The um, where was I going with that? The oh, the reviews. Bruce's question. The um, the. <laughs> You said sometimes sometimes the reviews probably all come back positive and sometimes all negative. I can tell you that in three years, we have had one piece where the reviews all came back with accept. And it, uh, <laughs> what a it blew my mind because I didn't think it was possible. And so, um, so that piece went immediately. I mean, no revision. It went straight to conditional accept for them to put their biographical information in the, in the manuscript. Um, that was an easy call. The. I really like, I almost want you to repeat that though. Cause I think right from the outside, I think a lot of people would be surprised by that, but I, it also really like sort of speaks to this whole research enterprise, right? Like it, this is, it's not easy. We know that, but um, I, there's just so many different opinions that can come in and different ways to do things that like, yeah, you can't get three people to agree 
on probably, you know, some of the best work is coming to par. That's right. And still that's um, true. Because of PAR's status as one of the top journals, I, th- I think we get a lot of research because everybody wants to publish in PAR. The the authors don't necessarily distinguish their work and, and sort it out on the basis of where it's likely to be published. They, they send it to PAR first. And so we get, I mean, we get upwards of 700 manuscripts a year, um, 90% of which we have to reject. So, you know, that's, I think that's significant in and of itself. But yeah, we, if you think about the research enterprise, if you think about the act of peer reviewing, what are we asking them to do? We're asking an independent researcher to look at somebody else's work and one, tell us whether or not it merits publication, but two, tell us why or why not. And so a good review gives us positives and negatives. If, if someone goes into a, a task with the expectation that they're going to critique someone's work, then, I mean, it's inherent in what they're doing to find problems or find mistakes or find things that they would change. And I, I think that sort of predisposes the outcome toward revise and resubmit or reject because we're looking for things that are wrong or unclear or, um, you know, problematic. So we, like I said, we see very few, <laughs> only one so far in three years, uh, that's that's been accepted across the board. It is not uncommon for us to see three rejects, however. Some of those we expect, like I said earlier, we we might send a piece out for review that we know probably won't be accepted because it's coming from a brand new assistant professor who just finished a PhD program or because it's from a scholar in a developing country and we want to give them good feedback to assist them uh, in, in their work and to further our goals in reaching out to those countries. Uh, so, so there are some manuscripts where we expect that. And then there are others where, I mean, <laughs> we send something out from a top scholar and it comes back with three rejects. Those are the ones where we really regret having to write the letter because we know we're going to get one back, but, <laughs> but we do because that's our job. Um, and, and if the research is not not up to standards, then we have to say so. You know, the, the middle of the road constitutes the bulk of the of the results, and that means a lot of revise and resubmit recommendations, a lot of mixed reviews where one one reviewer says accept, one says reject, one says revise and resubmit. And those are the ones where we spend most of our time. You know, we're three rejects, there's nothing we can do about that except tell them where to go next. Um, but, but all of those others with the revise and resubmits or the mixed bag reviews, we have to, to really sit down and look at what the reviewers are saying carefully to get a sense for whether or not the piece meets our goals, you know, significance, uh, validity, reliability, importance, audience reach, um, or, or not. And, and, you know, we have to think about what they're saying. And one of the questions we ask ourselves is, could they do this in the context of a revision? Sometimes we'll look at the comments and we say, there's no way under any circumstance that a normal person, and and I know there are some PA scholars who are not normal people, but uh, there's no way that a normal person could do this in three months or six months or whatever whatever we gave them because they'd have to go back and start over and collect new data. And, and that's not that's not what an R&R is for. Um, an R&R is really intended to, to make the necessary changes to the research that you've already done to get it to get it through the hoop. And so, you know, we think carefully about those. And and that's I mean, that's one of the decision points. Could they do it? Could they not do it? And we've done it. So we have a pretty good sense of, of what it takes. Um, and, you know, I think that's that's the real challenging part of the job. And it, it, sometimes we have to make tough calls. We probably reject things that uh, would be immediately accepted by another journal. But that's, again, that's the tough part of our job. You had mentioned when you send review requests out to people, you normally only will send up to about two reviews to somebody a year unless they're on the editorial board, and then they can expect more requests. 
what kind of role do you expect your editorial board members to play in the journal? And then also, how do you pick them? Good question. Um, we have a very large editorial board. Uh, we have, I think, over 80 people on our board now. And the way we pick them tells you a little bit about what we care about. And so if you, if you look at them, there's a mixture of academics and practitioners because PAR has a practitioner audience. That's part of our mission. They are from the U.S., but they're also from the farthest reaches of the globe. Every country where we, uh, where we have connections, um, you know, we try to, to make sure that those people have representation on our board. So you see members from China, Korea, uh, Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong, Australia, um, Latin American countries. We have some from Brazil now. Um, I think we just put one on from Germany. So, you know, they're, they're there to be representative. We try to make sure that we have uh, representation from the different subfields of the discipline. So we want people who do budgeting. We want people who do performance. We want people who do nonprofit, uh, which is an important part of, of what we do, uh, so on and so forth. We want uh, social equity. So we want a good distribution of men and women uh, or people who identify otherwise. We want uh, a good mixture of, uh, of people by race, by age. But, um, you know, the... <laughs> One of the challenges we run into uh, already is finding people who aren't already on the board or who haven't already served because our, our community is not that large, but we want experts. Uh, so, you know, we're not putting brand new assistant professors on the, on the board. We are putting people on who have demonstrated their expertise. Now, uh, other editors have said that that means somebody who's earned tenure. We don't use that particular heuristic. We think about what somebody has, has done in their research career. Have they distinguished themselves? Do we know them to be an expert on topic A, B, or C? Um, and so we think a, a little bit about rising stars in the discipline when we go out and look for people. Uh, who's likely to be the next star? Who's likely to make the, the next big uh, breakthrough or something like that? Um, but we also just want people who are involved and willing to do the work. So what is that work? We want people on our board to um, to kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? We want them to promote PAR. We want them to be our voice out there in the world. So if we have somebody on our board from Brazil, one of the reasons they're on the board is that we want them to help us to um, solicit manuscripts, identify relevant research, and um, to kind of to be our face in their country, if you will. Um, also, in, in, the, in the case of many of our subfields, subdisciplines, there are conferences that Paul and I just don't go to uh, because we can't be everywhere at once. We, we have limitations on our travel budgets, too, probably more stringent now than ever. Um, and so if, you know, if, if a member is going to ABFM, we expect that member to have their eyes open for research that might make its way into PAR. Um, or if they're going to a performance conference, same thing. So they're kind of our eyes and ears. They're our voice. They're, uh, we hope that they'll promote the journal. One of the things that I think is more important today than ever is, is what they do on social media. So when we share a call for papers or when we share a link to a new virtual issue, uh, those are the people who are out there circulating those in their networks. And some of our practitioners uh, have really tremendous networks. We, we have uh, ICMA on, on the list uh, this year, uh, for example, and that's a, that's a really powerful network to access. Uh, so, you know, you, you think about what these individuals can do, what's their expertise, and then you think about the practical side. What can they what can they do to help us promote PAR, to solicit manuscripts, and, and so on and so forth. So, uh, you know, they're they're kind of ambassadors in a way. We we ask them to come to our annual editorial board meeting. Uh, usually, that's a, a question and answer where we 
talk about PAR and what we've done and our achievements and our strategies, and, and they give us ideas. And certainly that's one of the most important things anybody can do for us is to share their ideas and their thoughts and their suggestions because we're not perfect. Uh, we looked at, at a system and, you know, at one point three years ago and, and told the world how we would change it. Um, certainly people can look at what we're doing and offer their, their suggestions and ideas in the same way. Um, we're not, I mean, we're, we're, we're stuck with a lot of the decisions we've made, but we're not so inflexible that we can't adapt. And one of the things that I think, particularly in the current environment, you're going to see is, is more adaptation on our part. Uh, we have to figure out how to get through some, uh, some particular struggles. One of, one of the things we've learned this week is that uh, Volume 80, Issue 3, that's slated to come out a month from now, uh, will not be printed because of the global supply chain issues. Uh, warehousing and other things we can't our publisher Wiley can't get the can't get paper to print it uh, so social distancing takes its toll I suppose well we're coming up on the end and I don't know if this is a good question to end with so tell me if it's not and we'll do something else um, but I'm thinking like what are the five things or three things or 25 things, I don't care, um, that you wish everyone did before they submitted to Well, play. that's a good one. Where do the, that's, a, okay. that's a really great question. <laughs> Maybe we should start with that. Um, what are the five, three, or 25 things we wish people would do before they submitted to PAR? Uh, you know, copy edit. Proofread your own piece. Look, look for your own mistakes. Have a friend read through it um, because, you know, Paul and I aren't looking at that necessarily when we make our first read, but our reviewers will eat you for lunch if you send them something that's poorly written. And I think this is more important for people who are writing with uh, sort of English as a second language because things don't come across as easily. Um, the 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 there's a tendency maybe to word things awkwardly, and I think it would it would really benefit some of some of our authors if they would take the time to to ask someone else to to look through it before we get it. Those are simple things. You've heard those before, I'm sure. Uh, you know the thing that really burns me up is is when we get a piece and it's obvious that it was submitted to and rejected by another journal. Um, and they didn't even take the time to reformat it before they sent it to us. Because if you're not going to reformat it, I know good and well that you haven't looked at the reviewer comments and made the necessary edits that were requested by the previous journal. So when I get a manuscript that has JEL codes at the beginning and numbered section headings, I know where that went and I know what happened to it. And it may be the greatest piece since sliced bread, but you've biased your piece in our eyes. And that is a terrible tragedy because with a little work, you could have at least disguised what you were doing. Um, similar mistakes. Uh, take the chapter uh, numerology out of your dissertation before you submit it to us. Um had a piece in our first few months on the job where all of the tables were labeled 6.1, 6.2, 6.3. And what do you say to that? It's pretty obvious that the author was a PhD student or recent graduate who had just sent us the methods and analysis chapter from their dissertation, which is fine. We love new research, but golly, you know, again, talk about bias. We saw it, the reviewers were going to see it, and so take a little time and think about what you're doing. Make it look nice. Uh, if we get a piece that has no PA references in the citation list, there's a really strong chance it will be desk rejected. Um, if we look at a piece and there are no PAR citations in the reference list, there's a good chance it's going to be desk rejected. Not because we're arrogant or self-centered as a journal, but because we publish things that have an audience. And if we haven't published about this thing in our journal, 
then it's going to be really difficult for you to demonstrate how your work connects to a core area of public administration. And that's important to us. You know, we know our audience. And while we promote interdisciplinary work, it still has to connect to PA literature. It has to connect to PA theory. If it doesn't, it's going to have a terrible time. Um, you know, those are the big ones. Um, I'm sure there are other things I could think of with, with more time, but those are the things that are just kind of pet peeves, I guess, if you will. I, I guess another obvious one is page limits, word counts. We have those for a reason. Uh, one, if you can't say what you have to say in 30 manuscript pages, I'm not sure you're going to be able to say it in 60. And so you know, it needs to be succinct because we have page limitations. We have the practical constraints of um, the number of pages that we're allowed to publish in a year. And if we take up half an issue with one article, then that means there are uh, five or six other articles that can't be published. So we just can't do that. So be cognizant of that. It's, it's not a good use of reviewer time to send us something that long, um, even if it's important. Because if, it, if it's that long, it's probably a book, uh, or at least a book chapter. So, you know, there are lots of things that we see. Um, I, I would just ask authors to think about why they're sending it to PAR. Why does, why does this piece merit publication in PAR? And tell us at the beginning. You know, put it in the abstract. Make it clear what you're doing, why you're doing it, and why people will be interested in it. Give us the evidence for practice points that we ask for so that we know how it relates to practice or how a practitioner might use it. And then uh, write a really bang up piece. That's what we're looking for. Is there anything that you wish people knew about the production side or what y'all did as editors? Sure. I mean, um, you know, the backside of, of the publication process is, is aptly named. <laughs> it's it's uh, you know backside's not the most appealing not the most appealing in most cases um you know we get emails from authors what's the status of my manuscript i submitted this 89 and a half days ago um that's good that's you know 90 days is my rule of thumb as well if i haven't heard i'll i'll probably send an email just to inquire if i've submitted something but you know it it's the Sometimes those emails come with attitude, <laughs> and uh, that doesn't really sit well with anybody, I think. We're doing the best we can. Um, we're not ignoring anybody's research. And and sometimes, you know, those emails are very helpful because um, at least during the transition, we got an email or two from people whose work had been accepted but never sent through the production process. And so if they hadn't emailed us, we wouldn't know. Um, but you know, it's okay to inquire, but don't, don't be mean about it. You don't have to accuse us of being incompetent when you ask. We're, we're waiting on reviewers. That's usually the, the, uh, the answer. Most of the time we have two reviews in hand and the third is, you know, 15 days late or 40 days late or whatever. And we know that we're keeping track of that and we rattle their, their cage on a regular basis. Um, the other things, you know, I think PAR is really lucky because we have an exceptional production team. When we click the accept button, that manuscript goes over the wires to uh, Singapore, I think, and it goes right into the production process. And we have a goal of, of getting things published online in early view as quickly as possible because the sooner it's out there, the sooner it can be read and cited. Um, our team, you know, they set they set good limits on how long you have to proof an article when it comes back to you, and I think that's one of the hangups is that sometimes people don't respect the uh, the timelines that we put on them. Most of the time, that doesn't matter. I mean, you're just hurting yourself by delaying publication. Uh, it matters if you're one of the articles that we've picked to publish in the next issue, uh, because all that really has to be done within 30 days uh, from the time I pick the table of contents. And, and so if I have an author who's just kind of ignoring uh, the request to, to approve a proof, for example, which is just a click usually, um, 
then you're holding up production for the whole journal. That's really annoying. Uh, the only time that has happened for me so far was with a book review. <laughs> the uh, the author of a book review either didn't think it was important or was ignoring the emails or maybe just didn't get them. I don't know. Um, and they were literally holding up production for an issue. So we had to <laughs> take some pretty extraordinary means to reach that person and get them to say okay. Uh, but otherwise, the production process really is uh, it's out of our hands. Once once we click accept, somebody else is doing the work. Uh, somebody in Wiley's offices, and that's that's really great because they're trained professionals. Um, we next see the piece after you have approved your proof and immediately before it goes online. So I usually take, uh, well, they give me a day without yelling at me to read something that's been proofed uh, for my approval. And when I approve it, it goes online. So uh, the production process is, is for the most part pretty easy, but the backside of the review process is pretty ugly sometimes. Well, Jeremy, I think this has been great. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. I uh, occasionally have time to click over and listen to the stuff you put up. So I'm I'm beyond honored that you would think of us, uh, Paul and I, as as uh, participants, and it's been great to talk to you. Oh, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. We appreciate it.